This is the Indiana Deer News Podcast, your number one resource for anything and everything that has to do with the wild deer herd in Indiana. On this episode, we are blessed to be joined by Mr. Joe Caudell. Many of you will recognize him as the 2016 deer biologist hire for the state of Indiana. On this episode, we touch on his philosophy of deer management, the special antlerless season, rut mapping, county harvest data, and a change of title that he's going through presently. That and so much more on this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. All right, today we are blessed to be joined by Mr. Joe Caudell. Um, many of you will recognize him from the hiree back in 2016, I believe it was. He came into the uh, Indiana side of things as our deer biologist. And uh, it, this is an interview that I know I have been extremely excited about. And uh, every time I've had the blessing to hear Joe speak or listen to him, I've, it's always been just an educational um, time. So uh, welcome, Joe, and uh, thank you for joining. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. glad to be here. So for many of the listeners, your name's not new to them. Many of the people that probably listen to this podcast are pretty active in, in, in deer hunting and just everything in general. But for those out there that don't know who you are, or for those who do but don't know kind of your path that brought you to uh, bless us with your service in Indiana, could you just take a brief moment and kind of introduce who Joe is? Yeah, so uh, so originally I'm from Georgia, kind of the, the northeast part of Georgia, and uh but i've really lived in a lot of different states and so i i haven't lived in georgia uh for a while but uh i'm a farm kid i grew up on a we had a poultry and and cattle operation out in a rural area so of course a lot of my time was spent getting into trouble and and (laughs) hunting and fishing on our land and you know just being a, a a rural kid out in the middle of nowhere and so uh, kind of after that, I went to the University of Georgia. I'd, I'd gotten involved with natural resources through uh, the 4-H program in terms of like natural resources management and education. And I went to uh, Georgia because they had a excellent forestry and, and wildlife management program. And you know, a lot of listeners may actually know that you know from University of Georgia, a lot of the quality deer management came out of that. Mm-hmm. With, uh, some of the faculty there, and they were doing a lot of deer research. And actually, that's where I first got involved with with deer, and wound up being a technician on an urban deer research project in uh, South Carolina, and also worked in their deer pens, uh, being a technician on deer behavior studies. And so I got uh, a fairly early exposure to doing research on deer, and just found them uh, fascinating. And then after that. Uh, I wound up going to Australia to do my master's project, which happened to be on snakes. And so that was the other thing I was really interested in. So I got to travel around Australia catching snakes and, and testing them for different things. And uh, I was getting my, my master's through Utah State at the time. So I was doing my research over in Australia and, and doing my classes in, in Utah. And when I came back, I wound up going ahead and doing a PhD on birds. So I've worked on basically mammals and reptiles and birds. uh, And 
and so, you know, I've got a pretty varied background. Yeah. And, and so not just, you know, working on deer in the past. And, uh, that actually led me to a, a variety of different jobs. And so, uh, like I'd mentioned before, I'd spent a lot of time with the 4-H program in Georgia. So I actually uh, worked for them for about 10 years uh, over the course of my career and even after I got done with my PhD, I came back and, and worked for the Cooperative Extension Service for a while. And then after that, I went to work for USDA Wildlife Services for about 10 years. And much of that was actually spent as the disease biologist in Indiana. So I came to Indiana about 2006, if I remember right, and was here about eight years. And then... Uh, there was an opportunity to take a job as a faculty member teaching wildlife management at Murray State University down in Texas, and we were living in southern Indiana at the time, and it wasn't too far of a commute to you know, go down and then come back on the weekends and so forth, and so mm-hmm. I did that about three years, and then after Chad left, I saw this position was open and the timing was right, so I applied for it, got to move back to our farm in southern Indiana and was a deer biologist for a while and then uh, transitioned into my new job as one of uh, uh, Amanda's uh, assistant directors for the Division of Fish and Wildlife. Excellent. And uh, since you mentioned Amanda, for those listening, if you want to hear a full discussion with Amanda, uh, the new director of the Division of Fish and Wildlife, it's uh, two episodes back. It's a great episode. You learn a lot about her and about kind of the direction the, the Division of Fish and Wildlife is heading. Um, but Joe, given that you kind of introduced that many listening may not be aware of, or maybe they've heard, but they're not exactly sure what does this new job, what is the new job for you, the new job title, and what does that change and impact possibly the, uh, the deer hunters out there? Like, what do we need to know that this shift is going to cause? Yeah. So, uh, my new title is I'm uh, one of the assistant directors of the Division of Fish and Wildlife. And if you go back and listen to that episode, you'll you'll hear there are several. Uh, you might hear there are several assistant directors now, and so I'm yeah. one of them. And I'm over our Office of Science and Research. And basically, the Office of Science and Research contains a lot of the biologists who do research on species and into the management of species. And so the deer biologist is in that program or in that office, our waterfowl biologist, our herpetologist, uh, a lot of our fish district biologists and, and researchers. And so, you know, basically my job is to provide the leadership to this segment of DFW mm-hmm. who is doing research on all these different aspects of Indiana's fish and wildlife resources, which actually ties in well with my background because I've spent a lot of time, you know, not only working on deer, but working on uh, various uh, reptiles and and birds and a lot of different species, diseases uh, over the course of my career. Given that you were hired on as the deer biologist, shifting kind of mm-hmm. back to that uh, in 2016, is, is my memory right on that? It was 2016? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate for the listeners um, just what is your general philosophy when it comes towards deer management? What is that? What, what is that? What is your view on that? Yeah, and so I would say I, I've probably got a little bit of a non-traditional view when it comes to deer management. When you think about you know other deer biologists uh, 
you know, just in general, because a lot of us receive very uh, intense training in, uh, you know, wildlife management and deer management and statistics and, and all these kinds of things. And, and a lot of times come at it with a really strong, um, uh, almost, you know, intense scientific approach. Mm-hmm. And with my background being so varied, I actually, um, I don't know, about 10 years ago, got really interested in natural resources economics. And the, the more I learned about that and looked into it, it really started driving my thinking about natural resources management. And so what I try to do now is apply this economic thinking to everything I do in wildlife management. Now, a lot of people may hear that word economics and really think of that classic definition of what they may have learned in school or they see in the news, which is all about scarcity and money and and those kinds of things. But it's it's actually a lot more interesting and and dynamic than that. Um, But, you know, that classic view is that there's not enough stuff or money in the world and, you know, how do I get my share or as big a share as possible. Mm -hmm. But really economics is not about money. It's, it really can, it's better looked at as a a lens through which we can view the world and understand the decision-making of people, you know, but a, but a better definition of economics is how can we allocate what we have to make as many people as happy as possible. And so that's really that lens through which I view deer management. You know, how can we allocate what we have, this, this awesome resource that we have, to make as many people as happy as possible? And so it's not hinging on my personal or, you know, professional beliefs about deer management, about, you know, should we produce quality deer or provide as much hunting opportunity as possible or should we be managing for trophy deer? It's really how do I maximize the utility of deer as a natural resource? And in economics, utility is just a fancy word for happiness. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to me, the beauty of this thinking is it takes into account all of the public opinions to- towards deer. And, you know, e- even the negative opinions, you know, because sure. you know, a lot of people do have negative interactions with deer. So, you know, a hunter or a person who feeds deer, you know, for recreational feeding or, you know, just enjoy seeing deer, their happiness tends to increase with increasing numbers of deer. A hunter may also have greater happiness with a higher quality of deer. But, you know, if you think about it, somebody who's just feeding deer, their happiness may stay the same even if we've got higher quality deer. And then a commuter or a gardener or farmer or somebody like that may have decreasing happiness with increasing deer populations. But, you know, of course, with anything, people's interaction with deer are not that simple. So, for instance, my wife is a gardener. She likes to do landscaping and gardening and that kind of stuff, who also loves seeing deer until they eat her roses. And so, you know, you've got somebody who (laughs) likes seeing deer and likes interacting with deer, and, and they come up and hang out with our goats and stuff. And, and, you know, then at the same time, you know, there's this negative interaction when they eat her landscaping, you know, or, you know, think about a farmer, you know, of course, they're going to get unhappy when deer eat too much of their crops. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them also hunt and really don't have any desire just to see all the deer killed off. 
Yeah. Or, you know, even a hunter, you know, coming back from a hunting trip may get upset when they hit a deer and, and damage a truck or total a truck or something like that. And so really one of the biggest jobs of the deer biologist is to understand these complex relationships that people have with deer so that the population can be managed to increase that overall utility or happiness so you know that, that citizens of Indiana have with their deer population. Sounds like a task not many people would want to try to take on. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's, you know, and it's challenging and it's, and it's something to keep, I mean, it, you know, if, if I haven't, if I didn't, you know, transition into this, this new position, I mean, this is something, you know, I could easily spend the rest of my career on because it is, you know, so engaging every day and, it, and it's something to constantly be thinking about. And it's like, well, how do I do this? And, and how do I get better numbers? And, and, and how do I really better understand how to you know achieve this just this general goal and i guess uh from an observational standpoint hearing you talk and describe it in that manner really helps me figure out why we saw such a big interaction push from yourself and the division while you were here to deer hunters yeah i mean because if you know if 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 i don't really understand what people want i can't figure out what, you know, what the deer population should be or what, or what we should try to make it or, mm-hmm. you know, what our goal should be. And so, you know, that, that really is that key to managing, I mean, any natural resources, you know, so it's not just deer, but it's any interaction that, that we have with uh, the natural resources around us and figuring out, again, you know, how to maximize that, that utility or happiness um, is, is, you know, an objective way of looking at it. Sure. And it sounds like that's definitely something that it's, it's ever changing. The landscape of a developing city is going to change the mindset of those people around there. Four years time could change greatly the impact or the feedback that you receive. That's right. And just changing cultures and how we look at natural resources, which, you know, is why it's so important that we're always, you know, constantly reaching out and talking to you know, hunters and citizens and landowners and everybody and really understanding uh, what that landscape is out there of, you know, this varied opinions because, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, it it changes over time and it's changed uh, significantly over the course of my career. Mm. And, you know, that's just something that we have to keep a, a pulse on. And we do this through a lot of our survey and survey work and talking to people and, and listening to feedback. Yeah, and I know it's frustrating for some hunters to hear, but I think we we do have to kind of remind ourselves as deer hunters, we're not the only people that, I'm going to use air quotes, own the deer in Indiana. It's, it's the general populace. It's the general public. So you guys really have to, like you say, weigh the opinions of everybody. It's not just the deer hunters that you're trying to satisfy. And I think I think that's something that we all just need to kind of put in the back of our mind as we, we listen to our deer biologist or the DFW or the DNR, you know, speak to these things. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that, that is so critical because, you know, I mean, this resource belongs to the citizens of, of Indiana. And so, you know, and, and like I said, you know, they, it's this complex relationship that they have with this resource and it's it's difficult to tease apart. But, you know, if, if we use this type of thinking, you know, I, I generally think deer biologists and natural resources managers in general will typically be more successful 
than, you know, maybe focusing on a single philosophy or, you know, getting pigeonholed into using, you know, uh, a single type of thinking. I like it. Um, so shifting into kind of on, on that, so you were always tapped into us. I use us collectively mm-hmm. as deer hunters, the community. Yeah. And one of the greatest things that I've always enjoyed was just the resources that you continue to try to pump out to us as quickly as possible. Um, you know, this year we did get the county deer data sheets. I think it was in April sometime mm-hmm. earlier than I believe any other year you've been able to do. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I know some people are, 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 there's always skeptics. I think you kind of touched on that. And some people are like, well, if they're collecting the harvest data as it's happening, it's, you know, we, re, we use the check-in system and you guys have the information within 24 hours of the harvest sometimes. Why does it take so long to get just that out? Is it the fine polishing? Is it going through and, 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 and making sure the data is correct? Just if you could elaborate on that to maybe lessen or explain to some people out there that wonder why it takes some time. Yeah, so, you know, there's there's a couple of, uh, or really three major sources of uh, data that we use and put in those county deer data sheets. Uh, the first one is the harvest, and that's the one that we typically have first. But like you said, we do spend some time uh, going over that data. Uh, our licensed folks, you know, who work in that, uh, they spend some time uh, cleaning it up. And what I mean by that, for instance, I was, and, and, I, and I do this too, I go through and I look at it, and, and essentially what I'm trying to do is, is look for errors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the funniest one I think I found, which would be horrifying, you know, if you didn't realize what, what had happened, was somebody had checked in 14 bucks. <laughs> but he had a good you, year. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute, you know, of course this can't, right. And what it was is I looked at it. And literally, he had every uh, confirmation number. So, you know, if you've, you, you, most listeners may not realize this, but those confirmation numbers are sequential. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, if person A checks in the deer, the next person, you know, is set it up, and it's the next number. Well, this person obviously was at his computer and was mashing enter and submit, like, over and over again, because he literally had, you know, you know, the, the 14 sequential numbers, except for one person that snuck in, like, their check-in while he was trying to do this. Now, sure. I'm, I'm assuming at that point it said confirmed, and he stopped hitting the button. And so, uh, you know, one of the, the, the metrics that we put out is, you know, how many deer are checked in per hunter yeah. and how many, you know, bucks are checked. And so, like, I was doing this. I'm like, wait a minute. How, <laughs> you know, who's this person who checked in 14 deer? And so, you know, I looked at that, and I'm like, okay, well, that's obviously an error. So then, like, the licensed folks, you know, of course, they have to contact that person, find out what's going on. And, and so there's a lot of that. You know, sometimes people had problems checking in their deer. And so there's a, there's a little bit of follow-up that goes with that. Uh, I remember one year, I think the deer counter, uh, if, if anybody remembers this, the deer counter actually went backwards yeah. for a while. And that was basically them going in and cleaning up some of those just errors and stuff in that. So then, you know, the numbers were more accurately reflected. And of course I got, I think five calls within uh, four hours asking why the deer counter was going backwards. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just making sure that data is good. And, you know, even, even after we do all that, you know, if you notice in the deer report, we publish our, what we think is our error rate. And that's because we know that not everybody's going to check in their deer properly They'll just make a minor mistake, you know, um, 
And so, you know, we recognize that one, our our, our uh, data just has a certain amount of error. I mean, all data does, yeah. and you know, it's hard to get away from. And so, you know, that's the that's the first step. Uh, another big part, another big data set we use is the deer vehicle collisions. And so then we get that from the um, Department of Transportation. And so we, we do the same thing. We give them a little bit of time to finish collecting that data, to clean up any errors. It gets sent to us. And then we just have to put it in a format that is the same uh, that we use every year. So that might be like changing the date codes from, you know, they may have done it on, let's say, day one is January 1st of the year and then so forth. And so we then change that to you know, January 1, 2020. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, one, getting that data the same as it is with all the rest of our data in terms of counties. Um, you know, if they used lowercase counties, our database uses uppercase counties. And so, you know, one, it's getting everything to match. But then the biggest driver of why it takes uh, that long to get the information into the deer report is the survey because you've mm-hmm. got to remember the survey data actually goes into those deer reports as well. And so we try to have the survey ready to go. Uh, usually our target's February 1st, but uh, in this case we got held up a little bit and I don't think we got it out till mid-February. So then that pushed it back. Uh, we, we leave it open for about a month. And so uh, basically the second that, that data, that survey closes out, then we're ready to, uh, again, download all that information, start summarizing it, run our tables, uh, and get all that information into the, uh, the, the numbers. And then historically, that's what the district biologist and the deer biologist used for, uh, you know, assessing each county and, and what the quota should be and so forth. And so... You know, I started looking at this and said, well, I think people would be interested in it. Let's just share this information with everybody. And, you know, the first year we just put it in the end of the deer report. Last year it was taking a while just to get the deer report done because it was so big. And so we released it. And then I was like, well, you know, there's no reason we can't just go ahead and release this when I send it to all the district biologists. And so basically hunters got it at the same time the district biologist did. As a matter of fact, I think what I did is just told the district biologist just to go online and download it so I didn't have to send it to them. Uh, So, you know, they're literally seeing this information when the various biologists who try to evaluate the effects on the deer population uh, are seeing it now. Gotcha. And is that going to continue to be the goal, do you think, of, uh, I don't know Mm -hmm. if you're going to be involved in this in the future? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no reason for that not to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if, if folks are interested in those harvest numbers, of course, we now have that literally online as it's happening. I think yeah. it gets updated every day in that in, in that uh, web page. So folks can keep up on harvest numbers, and if that's what they're primarily interested, that's there. But, but yeah, our goal is to, you know, share information uh, and, you know, data that we have just as fast, that, you know, as possible. And so... You know, it, it does take a while to put together the deer report because that's a written analysis, and you know, it, it takes a long time to just just do the writing, and then you know, somebody has to edit it for, you know, grammar and and all those kinds of things, and then we ha- we you know, we wind up looking at that thing like three or four times in in each chapter, and then it goes off to uh, be 
put in a nice format that makes it easier to read. And so it, that's why it takes so long to get the, the full analysis done. But yeah, those data sheets, you know, that's something that we hope to, you know, keep generating just as fast as, as we're using it. So. Sure. Is there an ETA on the uh, DEER report? Uh, yeah, so we've got all the chapters written now. It is just in that, I don't know what you would call it, copy editing sure. uh, 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 portion, formatting and all that. So uh, we're just kind of waiting on that to get finalized now. But I, I don't know if I'd have an ETA, but, you yeah. know, soon. Wouldn't be shocked if it's in a couple of weeks. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, a couple of weeks is, is probably what I would think at the most. Good deal. I'm going to skip forward. There was something that I wanted to discuss with you, and it kind of got touched on, and it's the surveys. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I appreciate them. A ton of people, we've been trying to encourage as many people to do it or not. Can you just share with the listeners, what what is the percentage of hunters that actually do them? Yeah, so, uh, so we publish those numbers in the deer report. And, and, of course, we run two, our, our two primary surveys. So the first one is what we call the after-hunt survey. And that one is primarily how we collect a lot of the biological data that we used to get at the physical check stations. You know, if you remember when you used to check in your deer, uh, you would go and, uh, uh, you know, show up at the check station. The biologist would age the deer you know, they might collect a CWD sample, you know, uh, they do some of that stuff while you might be in uh, checking in your deer on the inside. Well, of course, when we went to the online check-in, we lost that. And this survey allows us to, allows a hunter to enter in information about their deer. And so we're asking them even things we didn't collect before, like antler characteristics and uh, the age of the deer. We actually have videos in there that show people how to age the deer if they don't know how to do that. Uh, and we asked just a variety of questions. Like, for instance, this year we asked if anybody saw any evidence of EHD because you can see evidence of past EHD infection by looking at the hooves. Mm-hmm. And so this is a really valuable data source. And for that one, you know, if we have and, – and that's only for a successful hunter. So, you know, somebody yeah. who's hunting is unsuccessful, they don't get it. And so if you think about that one, uh, I don't remember the actual number this year, but, you know, typically we harvest between 100 and 120,000 deer, and we get about three thousand, two to 3,000 of those back. And so it's a fairly low percentage. But for those, you know, our target that would really help out hunters more than anything in terms of understanding age structure and that kind of stuff would be about 100 per county. And so, it, you know, if we, if we can get – uh, on average, 100, 150 per county. Then, then we start getting into a good data set that tells us a lot more about those individual counties. And so that that one's a really important one that you know we'd like to see hunters filling out. And actually, what we started doing this past year is if you did fill it out, we're actually mailing out those metal bands. So the the historic metal bands that we use for checking in deer, we actually sent a thank you letter with one of those metal bands and, and one of one of our magnets in there. But, you know, I think most hunters are probably going to be most appreciative of seeing those metal bands. And we're going to try to continue that into the future uh, as well. I think we actually uh, put some information about that in the upcoming uh, hunting guide. But, uh, you know, if any of your listeners would be interested in doing that, then at the end of the season, you know, they'll uh, – get a letter, a thank you letter with, uh, one of the metal bands in there. Yeah. I, I, I'm very, 
frustrated in the number of hunters that, that answered the survey personally. Um, there is no reason. We had one county, I remember, I'm tr- I was trying to pull the data while you were speaking to that because I remember I had it saved and I don't know where I put it, but mm-hmm. one county had one, I know, was the lowest yeah. number, and I don't think there was any county that had more than 50, if I recall. There was, yeah. there was only one or two. Like I said, yeah, that that one we typically get a uh, uh, fairly low response from, and you know, it would just be so useful if uh, we could get uh, more from that, you know, and I think hunters on those county deer data sheets, you know, like what, what they would see uh, from that is more information about, you know, age and sex characteristics and those mm-hmm. kinds of things. And so uh, a lot of times because we don't have to, uh, or because we don't get enough information from that, we group that information together in the, the the deer management units that we created, you know, really to kind of consolidate data. So mm-hmm. in, in a case like this where we don't have enough data from a county, we can say, okay, well, these counties are similar enough that we'll just run it on that. Gotcha. But, but yeah, but if hunters really want to see things like age and sex structure and quality of deer, uh, all of those things by their by their county, then that after hunt survey uh, would really be the one to fill out. And just for those listening, you know, anybody listening to this, be sure if you haven't done it, do it. It does not take long. It's actually informative if you've never, um, you know, I, I think Joe said there's some video tutorials in there. If you've never done some of the things that they're asking, it, it walks you through it. It's very easy to do. And if you are claiming that you never received it, it's actually in your confirmation email, correct, Joe? Yep, that's right. Yep. So. And and even and even if you don't get it, there's a link on the website that you can just go and click on it and fill it out for your deer. So, you know, if you don't have time at that point or you lose that confirmation email, you can always go to our deer.dnr.in.gov website, and there's there's a I think it's down towards the bottom somewhere, but there's a link to that survey. And so, uh, yeah, the, the more people who fill that out, just I mean, really, the better we'll be able to manage the deer population from from the biological standpoint. And to be fair, if hunters want to be heard more, the more we can partake in survey. Now, that one's more so about the harvest and things, but then just the overall uh, surveys that you put out as well. If hunters want our voice to be heard and be weighed in, like you were discussing earlier, you know, you have to weigh everybody's public opinion. The more opinions you get, the stronger statistically that opinion gets, correct? That's right. And so that, uh, like, hunter opinion on various topics is really what our deer management survey is for. And, and that's that survey at the end of the uh, hunting season that we put out, like I said, normally around February 1st. And by far, that's the best place to get your voice heard because that data gets directly incorporated into those data sheets. And, and that's what we look at to make our management decisions. And in that one, it's about 10%, 8 to 10% of hunters mm-hmm. who wind up filling out that one, so it is higher. And we also have uh, three to 4,000 non-hunters who fill that out every year. So basically what we do is we send that out to anybody who has purchased a license with DNR, with sure. uh, Division of Wildlife. And so if somebody's purchased a fishing license, you know, they may not be a hunter, but then that gives us at least an idea of what non-hunter opinions are. And, but, of course, by far, uh, it's, it's, you know, uh, if we have three, four, 5,000 non-hunters who fill it out, 
typically we're seeing 25, 30,000 hunters who are filling it out. So uh, a much higher proportion of uh, people filling it out than our past paper surveys. Good. But uh, but yeah, I mean you know the the more the more people who fill it out, the finer scale we'll have for the county. And I know that's where a lot of hunters tend to focus their uh, their their focus is in the county where they live and the mm-hmm. county where they hunt. And so that's where you know a, a hunter can make a real difference. Is you know the statewide numbers is kind of hard to you know kind of visualize how one person can influence you know, their, how their um, opinion will weigh in a statewide survey. But remember, in those county data sheets, we demonstrate how we break that out by the county. And, you know, in some cases, we might get five people who give us their opinion in a county. And, you know, and, and that's that's very difficult to make a, a decision from. And so if, you know, hunters want to have a, a greater influence in the county – that's where you get out with your, you know, your hunting buddies or your family and say, hey, make sure you fill out this survey because we really want to make sure that our opinion gets heard and goes into the management of deer within our county. Yep. Yeah. I've, I've told people, I know there's a lot of deer groups that are pushing their members to get more involved in that and at least give mm-hmm. that survey because they seem to have all the ability on forums to share their opinions, but they don't have the ability to sit down for 10 minutes and do the surveys that you guys will actually listen to and, and take in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's something that I think, I think us as hunters need to step up and, and take a little bit more onus in this and, and do it. Um, cause yeah, it's, it's, I'll just leave it at that. I get frustrated when I talk about it. There's, there's no excuse in my opinion. They take 10 to 15 minutes and they are a great resource for yourself or whoever takes the deer biologist lead into the future. Um, and, uh, it's, yeah. Well, you know, and, and the importance of that, you know, like one of the things I try to do as a deer biologist is really think about into the future potential issues. Like, uh, well, you know, we, we knew we were going to have to evaluate the rifle, uh, rifle law. That was just part of the law. And yeah. so, you know, we try to ask questions about that. Or we recognized, uh, for instance, this year we were getting a lot more questions on uh, can we use a different type of equipment? You know, can we incorporate this piece of equipment, this piece of equipment? Mm-hmm. So we tried to ask questions about, you know, what hunters thought about various pieces of equipment. And when there was a formal request from somebody for, you know, a, a new rule, we have that data. And yeah. so, that, you know, that's that's what we try to do is anticipate issues, put those in the um, uh, the survey so that we have that data when we're making those decisions, you know, just like we did when we included a bunch of information, a bunch of questions, a lot of questions about CWD about two or three years ago. It's really trying to anticipate the needs into the future so that we have that data in case we have to make a really quick decision or, you know, a a rule proposal comes up and, and we can look and see if we actually have data to answer that question. A proactive approach rather than reactive. Correct. Yeah. And if, you, if those listening are wondering what Joe's talking about, uh, various weapons, you can actually listen to the Sandra Jensen episode. She's uh, one of the uh, ALJs for the NRC, and they're doing some public opinion input on uh, the air rifle inclusion. I'm, I'm assuming mm-hmm. that's what you were hinting at. 
Yes. Yep. 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 So listen to that episode. It's one episode ago, and uh, there's some public comment meetings that are set to occur, and you can go, and Sandra will be there. She collects everything. Um, it was it was amazing to hear that she reads literally every single comment that she receives, so um, be sure to do that. Uh, but progressing on, there was one thing that you emailed me about, Joe, that I'm really intrigued by. Um, I mean, anything deer-related catches my eye, and I love to read it, but you touched on a, a, a research project by the deer program done this last year that created a rut map yeah. for the state based on deer collisions. Can you, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So one of the things that deer biologists do is, is we go to scientific meetings with each other and, you know, we, we talk with other deer biologists, we find out what's going on, we find out about new research. So a lot of times before it's even published in our scientific literature and at the Southeastern uh, deer conference, uh, which, which is our primary deer research conference. And even though it's the Southeastern, it, it just, that's kind of where it started. And you get people from all over the country coming to this. Uh, there were some researchers, uh, if I remember right, at the University of Georgia who started thinking about this. And so, you know, if you think about deer vehicle collisions and you look at some of the data we've put out about deer vehicle collisions, you see that there are these peaks in the fall. And, of course, you know, a hunter would recognize that, oh, well, that's just deer when they're being active during the rut chasing does. And so the, the typical way that um, biologists in the past have uh, tried to figure out what the, like the peak of the rut is is to look at the peak of breeding. And so you do that by looking at uh, fetuses in the early spring. And so there, there was a technique that's still commonly used in a lot of states and uh, called a herd health check. And so what you do in a herd health check is you send your biologist out. They might take, you know, a handful of deer uh, in the county. They look at the, like how much fat they've got left on their bodies so they are trying to assess, you know, the quality of, of that deer coming through the winter. They look at the, the age structure, so they're aging the deer. Uh, they might collect samples for CWD or a variety of different diseases. And then if it's a doe, they collect the, the fetuses, and, and you can actually age the fetus by putting them on uh, a fetus scale. And that tells you when that, uh, that, that fetus was conceived. And so you backdate it, and you know, let's say that you take 100 deer statewide what you would see is a an even uh, a normal distribution of bell curve, mm -hmm. and the peak of that bell curve is where most of your breeding occurred because most of your the, the fetuses that you would be aging would be, would say let's say November 11th. Okay. And so, but because we realize that you know that's also when deer are moving the most, that's probably when they're getting hit the most. And so what those people did is they, they had their, uh, that fetus data from, from years and years ago. You know, they've been collecting for a very long time. And they said, hmm, I wonder if it'll match up with the deer vehicle collision data. And sure enough, when, when they overlaid those two data sets together, they saw, you know, the, the peak of the, the breeding was the same as the peak of the movement for, or, or the peak of deer vehicle collisions. And you know, in Indiana, we've never traditionally done uh, these herd health checks, but we have 
20 plus years of data from the DOT about deer vehicle collisions. And so basically we took their methodology for uh, evaluating the uh, uh, like when the peak of the rut is based on the peak of the deer vehicle collisions, and we did that for each county. And so in this next deer report that's coming out, there will be you know, literally by county when the peak of the deer vehicle collisions are, which then correspond with the peak of the rut. And we also, you know, we did it by county because that's kind of the, the base level of analysis we mm-hmm. typically do. And then we also did some grouping. So our statistician, uh, Emily McCallan, she said, okay, well, which counties kind of group together are most alike and so forth? And if I remember right, they're like five or six groupings of like when like these counties are most similar in the, the, the peak of the rut. And so we we produced that map for you know, for hunters who just may be interested, maybe, you know, they want to try to get their, you know, get out there and have their, their hunting uh, uh, timed with, you know, maybe just before the peak of the rut and, and then, you know, uh, the peak and then a little bit after. But, you know, just as an interesting tool that, that hunters will now have that will show them, you know, statewide because, you know, you probably have a good idea where you're hunt, you know, when that when that peak is. But what a lot of people may not realize is that peak may be different even just a, a couple of counties over. And, and that's what we saw, is, and, and that's what Georgia saw too, is there were these odd little pockets where the rut was different. And so, you know, a lot of times we think of the rut being earlier, further north and later as you move to the south. But mm-hmm. in, in reality, sometimes, you, you know, it might be, you know, at, at one date up north, and then actually even earlier than that in one little pocket for for whatever reason. And then, you know, it's just not this uniform north to south uh, rut map. So we, we have that. Uh, that'll be coming out in the next deer report, which we talked about. Hopefully it'll be coming out pretty soon. Yeah, it's incredible. When I saw the Georgia's rut map, like you were describing, there's these two little pockets in the center part of the state yeah. that one went early November. The other one got shoved down in late November. And it's yep. not a north to south progression. It, it's more almost in Georgia of an east to west. Like the southwest tip was early to mid December, mm-hmm. and just east of there, as you head east, it just got late. It got earlier and earlier, all the way to mid October in the southeast corner. Yeah, pretty much the same latitude line, but very different. It, it was it, it was intriguing and it was very interesting. I look forward to to reading our versions of it per per county. Um, that reminded me of a question I kind of forgot now that we're talking about per county and that in, in the deer collision and the rut map. Going back to the deer county surveys, was there any interesting uh, county statistics that jumped out at you that just seemed odd or is going to get looked at a little deeper? Or was there anything interesting? I know you shared the 14 bucks killed by one guy. That was interesting. But <laughs> <laughs> was there any statistical? Or, yeah, the, the 14 notes? checked in by that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if he's listening to this. He's, he's going to be like, oh, I didn't really do it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, like, one one group of counties I've been looking at for a while, and, and you know, I, I hope hunters would recognize this from our uh, county quotas, is mm-hmm. up there in the north uh, northeast, so, like, LaGrange, Steuben, uh, Noble, DeKalb. Uh, that's one that's kind of stuck, you know, kind of when, when I first got here, stood out as an outlier and, you know, uh, what what I'm looking for in those that deer county information are significant statistical drops. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, uh, the, the number of deer harvested in a county can drop by a lot if there are a lot of deer harvested there. And so you just would expect a lot of fluctuation. But what I'm looking for, and, and I think I, I wrote this up in the deer report, so you know, folks kind of understand what we're looking at, is I'm looking for these six statistical drops. And so we look at uh, standard deviation, and the standard deviation is a, a pretty big drop. And so I'm looking for like these one or two level standard deviation drops. And in those counties, we, we saw that. And, you know, occasionally we see that in a single county and it's like, hmm, maybe something's going on there. And so we start paying a little bit more attention. Uh, we saw the same thing over in, uh, let me think, if I remember right, I think it was like Ohio and Switzerland. If, if you look at that pre-EHD um, uh, county bonus antlers quota map, the one that actually came out the guide, you see like those were much lower than they had been in the past. And so, you know, anytime we see those large statistical drops or large statistical increases in any of our metrics, and so, you know, you know, that's that's basically how I'm using that data. Yeah. That that's what we're keying in on, and you know, that could be a change of uh, habitat quality. Uh, you know, usually the biggest thing driving deer populations is going to be habitat quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it could be a change in just how hunters are utilizing that resource. It could be a change to uh, landscape use. And so, like, for instance, if, um, you know, when when crop prices are really high and land comes out of CRP, you know, to plant corn or something like that, that's less deer habitat. And we might actually see a, a, a change in the deer population and then subsequent harvest because, you know, maybe big blocks of habitat have been converted into something else. And then likewise, you know, when something else occurs and maybe more land goes into quality habitat, we might see an increase. And so, you know, the tough part is always trying to tease out what's actually uh, going on. But then, you know, when we see that, that's what we start trying to do is just trying to understand what's going on in that county. We look real closely at what hunters are telling us, you know, and if we're getting you know, these trends in, you know, hunters telling us we're just not seeing the deer we're seeing anymore from those surveys, then, you know, we can uh, make those adjustments. And so, you know, and and those are some I hope, you know, you can see in the past that, you know, there may have been a big shift from what it was other than, you know, kind of just a general shift that, you know, we've had in the county bonus antlers quotas over the years. Yeah, I have the Indiana Deer Harvest data page up where you can go county by county, and mm-hmm. it shows five years' times. And, yeah, that, that LaGrange, Noble, Steuben, and DeKalb, I live in Elkhart County, so I'm very close mm-hmm. to it. And yep. I had kind of kept my eye on it, too, because each of those counties saw a significant percent drop from the 16-17 mm-hmm. season to the 17-18. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, though, the last couple of years, they've each one of them has been increasing slightly. Yep. And uh, each of them set a three-year record for harvest this last year. Um, despite a lower quota, so that hopefully that means a healthier deer population is occurring up there, and uh, it's, it's yeah, just... and, and that may mean like you know the, the, one of the other metrics I look at is the success rate. Yeah, and, and we actually use a couple of different metrics for that. Um, yeah, and so um, you know again, just just so you know our hunters out there who are listening to this, you know the the success rate and our effort that we're putting into harvesting is is a key metric. And, you know, what, what a deer biologist can look at is, is not just the harvest numbers. So the harvest numbers only tell you the number of deer that 
somebody was able to take, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that fluctuates pretty easily. Yeah. But what we're looking at is the number of deer that are harvested per effort. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if let's say we harvest 100 deer in a county, okay, and it takes hunters on average an hour to harvest that 100 deer, okay, and then let's say a year from now they harvest 120. Well, if it still took an hour to, on average to harvest those 120, you know that's a fairly consistent um, that's a fairly consistent metric. But if it takes hunters, let's say, two hours the following year to harvest a hundred deer, that means it's actually getting harder to harvest the same number of deer. And that's a better indicator of a declining deer population mm-hmm. because a hunter might get out there and, you know, they, they're, they're, they're going to get their buck. They're good hunters. And they realize that, man, I'm just not seeing a lot of deer. I just need to spend more time and effort in the woods. And so sometimes deer population, uh, deer harvest numbers can be consistent, but it's that effort that goes into it that is much more indicative of what's going on. And, and that's why we try to get at that. And, it's, and that's a hard number to get at in, in, in Indiana uh, just because of our license structure. It just makes it difficult to, to uh, obtain some of that data. But uh, I think we've got a couple of methods now that we're, that we're hoping work pretty well. And I'm assuming those surveys would help greatly. Oh yeah, I mean that's that's basically what we're using. Yeah. We're you know we're asking hunters if you know if people remember this. How many hours is it taking you yeah. to harvest a deer? You know how many deer did you want to harvest versus how many you actually were able to harvest, and you know that that paints a better picture of what's going on with the deer population. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you know we we really just add all these things up. So we look at the effort data. We go in, we look at the trends in deer vehicle collisions, we look at the hunter opinions, we look at uh, non-hunter opinions, and basically what we're trying to do is see if like all of them are consistently indicating a, a declining deer population or if they're all kind of indicating a stable deer population. Mm-hmm. The tricky one up there in uh, that four-corner area, Steuben and, and LaGrange and, and some of those, was that we were getting these mixed messages. Yeah. And so some indicators were indicating a declining deer population, while other indicators are in the, uh, indicating an increasing deer population. And so in those, then we just have to spend more time trying to research and use other methods to determine what's actually going on. And if if your listeners are familiar with our deer, our integrated deer research project that we have for, for, with Purdue, one of the areas that we're actually studying kind of in this pilot research program is that four corner area. And the reason is, is because we saw these indicators and when we were trying to decide where to, to do the work at, I said, let's really spend some time in that area because I need more information about what's going on in that area. And, and this would be a good way to kind of piggyback two different things together. And so, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're still trying to figure out what's exactly going on up there. And for those listening, I, uh, I have the webpage up for the, the integrated deer management project being led by Purdue uh, university in conjunction with them. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes that way, if anybody's interesting, I've, I've done that before I've touched on it before, but if you want to delve into it and in deeper and, and uh, read about it, uh, I'll have that link there. 
but it, it's it's nice to know and i think I'll, oftentimes when there's discussions of harvest joe i think too many people focus on just the number if the number's right. increasing that's that's a good sign or bad it's it's funny how it spins if we harvest yep. more deer well now we're overkilling them to some yep. people other people are like well that's a sign of a healthy deer population it's really a much deeper thing you got to unpack that number a lot right yeah um so you got back into the public opinion, and, and there was one thing that triggered a thought that I want to shift to the next uh, discussion was we, mm-hmm. we touched on EHD a little bit. Last year, it swept through a swath of our, our state pretty mm-hmm. heavily. Um, and unfortunately, it was even after, if I remember right, the, the quotas were already released or printed, and then you guys Yeah, the had hunting to, guide was already out yeah. at that point. Yep. yep. Can you explain kind of just how that all played out? And Because uh, I know some listening probably are from that area and more familiar with it, but can you just kind of unpack that moment and that unprecedented occurrence that we saw? Yeah, so, um, you know, EHD is going to be with us forever, and we're, we're always going to have these periods where – you know, we have an EHD outbreak uh, in, in various parts of, of our state. And actually, you know, um, uh, we can have EH, deer die from EHD pretty much anywhere in the state at any time. I, I think it's just ubiquitous out on the landscape. It's just kind of out there everywhere. And but, but that doesn't mean that we have an outbreak or a lot of deer dying from it. So, mm-hmm. you know, we think there's just this background level of, of infection that's always out there. And, and that pretty much holds up. We get reports uh, just on a regular basis of, hey, I, I've got a deer dead in my pond. Or, you know, sometimes I get, I've get i got 10 deer dead in my pond, but that's the only person who's reported something like that. And so, you know, with, with EHD, there are probably just these, and, and we don't know this for certain. I mean, this is, this is just a hypothesis that I've developed over time with my experience with deer diseases is that, you know, there's this, this background level of infection. Hunters from time to time are going to see dead deer. But when the environmental conditions are right, so hotter, drier weather, we haven't had a lot of rainfall, that is when it can take those localized outbreaks or just the occasional deer that's dying and pull those deer, some of which may be infected with EHD, together and cause a little bit more of an extensive outbreak, you know, and, and typically in the past, it's been about every five, six, seven years. Um, and so last year was one of those years. And so we started getting in some early reports about EHD. We started, you know, going out sampling those deer and, you know, sure enough, that's what it was. But of course, at that point, we didn't know if it was going to be an outbreak or just a random person who had seen, you know, an, e- an EHD deer. And then we started getting a lot of reports in from Clark County. That's kind of was kind of our start of it um, last year, and then started getting more and more calls from some of the surrounding counties. And so uh, we started looking at this. We started to get an idea of the extent of it. One of the things we did this year or last year is started asking people to report them online, and, and what that meant was. I had almost an instantaneous picture of what was going on versus in years past, we really didn't have a good idea what the EHD outbreak was until uh, essentially the season was over because you know, the, the EHD will continue to kill deer until we have the first hard frost. And then you start looking at the data and you see what you have. But we have such better tools now where 
one, the I mean, hunters, I mean, I, I cannot think, you know, hunters and, you know, even a lot of members of the general public enough for getting online and reporting uh, instances of EHD. Because I was able to look at that data on a map real time and say, okay, this looks like the area that it's going to hit. Then what I did is I took the number of reports that we had and converted those into the number of deer that I expected were probably dead out on the landscape that nobody saw, okay, because uh, there's been some research uh, actually on deer on the landscape, and, and you know, the, the idea is for every, uh, you know, one deer you see, there's probably nine or ten out there you don't. So I take that into account when I'm, you know, calculating my uh, my numbers. And so I looked and I said, okay, this is what we've got right now on the landscape. It's probably not going to stop until, you know, October, if we're lucky, you know, November more likely. And I kind of estimated that out. And because I was getting that data, you know, essentially in real time and, and hunting season hadn't started, that was kind of the key point is we needed to make this change before hunting season started because you don't want somebody to, you know, you can't lower the quota once somebody's already <laughs> harvested, you know, two or three deer. Uh, what we did is I said, I think this is going to be the effect of it. This is the estimated area. Let's go ahead and reduce the quotas by the number of deer that, you know, quote, have already been taken out of the hunting population and so um, I put that uh, proposal forward uh, everybody thought it was a bit crazy but it's like can we can we do this we've never done this you know once it's been published I'm like yeah I think we can we'll we just have to get the word out which of course we've got much better tools for for getting the word out now you know and I would say five or six seven years ago I think it would have been hard to let enough hunters know that we've changed things but once we've got that data pub or the, the guide published. But now, you know, we, it's just this group of tools that allows us to make this change. And, uh, you know, Cam Clark agreed with this and, you know, and, and he changed the quotas so that then, you know, we lowered those quotas to offset EHD in the year it was happening and as opposed to having to wait to the following year and do that. And so then this year we've, you know, we've looked at that and said, yeah, we were, you know, I probably missed that number a bit, you know, underestimated in some areas. And so what we did is we left quotas low in those areas. I think I underestimated that effect and to, so we can offset it again this year. And some of those you'll notice have actually come up a little bit, yeah. uh, not not to where they've previously been. You know, I, I don't think we've got a single county in Indiana this year that's a four or above. Uh, but again, just trying to offset the, the effects of EHD again this year. Yeah, I know you said you underestimated it, but imagine what could have been done if we didn't have that live data for you. Oh, what yeah. What the fallout could have been. Yeah, you know, and I mean, and that's what biologists need to make decisions on is that is they have to have data. And, you know, if if hunters hadn't got out and looked like they did and responded to that, I mean, we even had hunters who, so we've got a limited capability of actually getting out and sampling deer. Mm -hmm. And I would talk to hunters on the phone, and some of them were even willing to pull out spleens, which is the main organ that we need to test for EHD. They kept them refrigerated until we could dispatch a biologist or a conservation officer to come pick up that sample. And so we actually were able to sample more deer than we've ever had in the past. And again, 
that's just from, you know, hunters stepping up and, you know, I mean, we try to get out and sample as many deer as possible, but, you know, if, like for instance, on a Saturday, I'm in one location, yeah. you know, and, and there's one 10 counties away, I can't get there, but, you know, I could talk a hunter in through the process on how to pull out that spleen and then, you know, hold it till Monday morning till we got more staff back on, back online. So, uh, it was, it was a good partnership yeah kudos to all those landowners and hunters if you're listening thank you it was a great assistance and uh, we need to do more of that that's awesome so speaking of impacts on harvest and the Mm -hmm. effects that things can cause there was a big stir you know when hprs were granted that uh was it a four-year or five-year test run uh i think it was five years five years and Mm -hmm. uh they're now you know for for all intents and purposes moving forward they're here to stay um unless that would get amended in the future. But there was it was very controversial. There was always mm-hmm. arguments both directions. Now that we've had it for an extended amount of time, what what have we been able to draw any statistical effect or impact that high-powered rifles have had, Joe? Yeah, so uh, what, what we really saw, which was, uh, again, really interesting from somebody who uh, uh, loves seeing data and seeing these data sets come together, is the main thing that happened is people switch which type of firearm they were using. So uh, what we saw was a huge decline in the number of people using shotguns and about an equal equal increase for the number of people who were using high-powered rifles. A lot of the other equipment didn't get affected as much, and, you know, the – you know, what the conclusion we would draw from that is, you know, probably, you know, you, you still need these uh, pistol caliber rifles to hunt on public land. And so, you know, people aren't going to switch that equipment. You know, bow hunters, crossbow hunters, uh, muzzleloader hunters, you know, they're using that equipment because that was a choice. You know, they mm-hmm. maybe started out life, you know, using a shotgun as a kid and getting into that and then, you know, transitioned into shooting with a bow. And so, you know, you, you might get maybe a, a bow hunter who also, you know, maybe just harvested their doe with a shotgun, you know, just to get some meat in the freezer. And, you know, they may use a high-powered rifle to do that. But but really what we saw, the, the bulk of our change was from people uh, not using shotguns and switching over to high-powered rifles. But, but almost no effect on the deer population or, or deer harvest. It, it really didn't change the deer harvest at all. It, was there any, I don't believe I remember reading any, just the side note, maybe you know, was there was no safety issues during that no. time frame either as well, right? Not not beyond like what you would get with uh, a shotgun or, you know, any, any kind of firearm, sure. basically. But, you know, uh, the I, I know part of the fear uh, was that, you know, they, these would shoot much further and you would get houses, you know, you know, being shot because, you know, in, you know Indiana is so flat. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I grew up in Georgia, and South Georgia is just as flat as a lot of Indiana, and, you know, high-powered rifles have been there forever. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of it, beca- I think, is because a lot of hunters hunt from tree stands. They're shooting down towards the ground. You know, if you're hunting, you know, in a field anyway with a shotgun uh, or, uh, you know, a lot of our m- modern uh, shotguns and even muzzleloaders, they can shoot a lot further than they can back in the day yeah and so we still have to you know take that into account and so i i think it's just you know the nature of i mean that's just something that wasn't ignored or taken from granted to start with and so just the fact that again a lot of hunters are elevated 
and you know they're already kind of thinking about that even with other firearm equipment that you know that there really wasn't that big of a change in, in terms of safety I, and maybe this isn't a statistic that has been drawn upon because the data just wasn't there in responses but did was there any study or 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 thing that we can pull back from as far as the efficiency increase allowing high-powered rifles? Yeah, actually, I think that is, it's either in the, I think it's in the upcoming deer report. Okay. And um, I'm trying to remember uh, because actually somebody, uh, one of our, so one thing a lot of your listeners may not know is, is states sometimes collaborate on data. So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we have a season, somebody may call and ask us and say, hey, we're thinking about having crossbows in our state. What has been the effect of having crossbows? And so sometimes we do uh, an analysis, and that's actually what happened. The state called us and said, hey, you know, what's your effect on crossbows? I had this data that hunters had been reporting in our after-hunt survey about like how many hours it took them to harvest a deer. Yeah. And so I broke that out by equipment type. And so that's in that next deer report. And so uh, they can actually look. And, and, yeah, what we found is it really did not change the number of hours that a hunter was spending out in the woods. And so, you know, theoretically they can shoot further, but in reality, you know, if a hunter grew up shooting a deer at 75 yards you know, they know how to hunt at 75 yards and, you know, yep, they're going to wait and the deer is going to cross their path. Sure. And so it, it really didn't seem like it changed, uh, you know, the efficiency or the, um, you know, we also didn't see that in the, you know, hours per deer that it took to, to harvest a deer. We didn't see any significant change in that either. Gotcha. It's interesting. I, I think from the very start, it was more so the fear of the unknown that mm-hmm. caused a lot of the issues. Um, with it. And I know there's the issue of why can't we use it on public, but we can on private. Um, that's a discussion for another day. One of the most interesting things I remember when I sat down and, uh, heard you guys speak, uh, I came with a deer group that I, I was formerly involved mm-hmm. with on CWD. Yep. We, we spoke after the meeting about reduction zones. Cause you had, that was the first year that you were implementing more of these, I don't know, for lack of a better term, these targeted reduction mm-hmm. zones and like the yep. corridors and such. Um, first of all, can you explain kind of the concept? Because before that, if I remember right, a lot of our reduction zones were either large swaths or entire counties was kind of right. as small as they got. Can you right. explain? Because I know that's that's one question I get a lot emailed in is what drew you to these more designated areas? I already know the answer. I think most people do. But can you can you explain that a little bit? And then if you can roll into how long does a reduction zone need to uh, exist for you to draw enough data to see, okay, does this need to be shrunk, increased, stay put, deleted entirely? Yeah, so what, what, what I was trying to do with this was leverage basically deer population biology and, uh, and deer behavior into a method to reduce deer vehicle collisions because you know, in, in the past, you know, I'm sure hunters remember experiencing this, you know, county quotas were very high in a lot of cases, primarily because of deer vehicle collisions there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I started looking at this and, and I was like, you know, one, I didn't think it was working. It looked like harvest 
wasn't changing in the right places. And so, you know, if if most of our collisions are occurring in a given geographic area, that's where we need to if if we want a tool to try to address their vehicle collisions using using harvest, that's where it needs to be targeted because you know, if you think about it, if you just increase the quota and let's say I've got some land in some random spot in, you know, Brown County and you know, I'm going to harvest my deer on that on that in that area as opposed to going to the place that is is causing the problem. Mm-hmm. And of course, the place that it was causing the problem. So, so what we do, and and uh, I think people have seen this now in our deer reports, uh, is we basically map out all the deer vehicle collisions, and then we use a statistical technique to determine which places have the highest collisions, like you know per mile per square mile, and and it makes these little hot spots, and so we can see that, and so that's what we use to set these. Uh, what, I, what I think of as these linear deer reduction zones that are along a road. And so classic deer population theory is that, you know, when, when we take deer in a, in a harvest situation, you know, it, it's, um, it's compensatory mortality. So the idea is if you uh, take a deer, that deer you took, because it's not an extra deer, but you know, a deer on the landscape, it's probably it could have died from something else. So if we as hunters don't go out there and shoot deer, deer are still going to die. Yep. Uh, we we see this in urban areas. Uh, for instance, one of the studies that came out of uh, Bloomington, Indiana, where you know, of course, there's not a lot of hunting that goes on in in a lot of urban areas, just period. But this in this particular study, we saw the mortality rate very similar, and what the mortality rate what was primarily driving it in Bloomington was deer vehicle collisions. Once we they looked at it in a rural area, it was much more uh, uh, hunters and uh, you know just other forms of mortality, you know predation, disease, all the ones you can kind of think about. And so thinking about those two things, you know, my idea was well, if we can encourage hunters to hunt. You know, in these on private land, mostly I think there are a couple in public land, but mostly you know on on private land that is near these roads. Of course, you can't hunt from a road or hunt from a uh, a right of way or anything like that. But you know, the idea is like, okay, well, if I can find access on you know along these roads, then we would actually be removing deer that are going to get hit by a car. And so we would actually be able to leverage this compensatory mortality so that we convert a deer that would have just, you know, been hit by a car and wasted into a deer that can be harvested by a hunter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and so and we have no idea if this is going to work. It's a hypothesis. It's based on sound biology and sound population dynamics. But what we do in these cases is we test it out. And so we, we set, you know, basically set up an experiment. So we, we don't have these reduction zones just everywhere that, you know, that deer are a problem. And so what we can do then is we can look at the areas where deer, where we don't have the reduction zone, that we had very similar characteristics. So, you know, same amount of traffic, same speeds, same road width, that kind of stuff. And let's say we've got road A that is like that, that has, you know, 
100 deer collisions per square mile per year. That's not an actual number or anything. And we've got another one that has the same. Okay, If we take one of those and put a deer reduction zone around it, what we're looking for is you know, this one that's maybe 100 one year, maybe it's 90 another, maybe it's 80 another, maybe it's 100 again. We would expect that same thing to happen in road B. But now we put this deer reduction zone in it. So if the collisions in road A is, let's say, you know, 80 deer, collisions in road B, if they are 60 deer, that might be an indicator. Now, that's only one year. So that's why we have to run this for multiple years. And so what we're looking for is a difference between road A and road B over, you know, probably a three, four, five-year period to see if that technique works. If that technique works, we go, hey, we have a way of targeting, uh, a, a, a method to target and reduce deer vehicle collisions using hunters. And, and, you know, and that's the ideal solution because that's the most inexpensive solution you could come up with for uh, reducing deer vehicle collisions. If it doesn't work, we can say, yep, we tried it. Here's the data. It didn't work. We need to think of another solution. But the idea, you know, that the, the deer biologist is always going to be trying to look at these sorts of things and come up with novel solutions. And what this makes is just a much more fine-scale targeted deer management so that, you know, the whole county isn't getting affected. It's just those places that are causing uh, problems that are, that you know, that we're trying to solve that problem in that area. Yeah. And, and they you you'll probably want to draw information from these statistically so that way you can make a decision i would i would assume at least 4 or 5 years yep yep uh, you know because you know it takes a little bit of time to see a trend mm-hmm. and you know for instance last year one we had ehd in southern indiana and harvest was up in the rest of the state so that may be an odd year it, so it, something you know was going on there and so a lot of times what what, what um, scientists will do is see, try to see multiple years because we can't control for everything. And unfortunately, with wildlife research, there's so much that's out of our control that you have to run it for several years to, to see a trend. And so by running it four or five years, it also gives hunters a chance to find that area, to find access, to get to know the landowners. You know, and that, that'll take a while. Um that we can eventually draw uh, some sort of conclusion from that. Well, I think I have I have a couple more questions, Joe, if you're willing. I had a couple email questions in, and one oh, absolutely. One we kind of touched on a little bit, but we didn't actually uh, specify a number. Mm-hmm. Um, I got asked by three different individuals, wanted to know, is there a, a rough estimate in the, in the Department of Natural Resources' opinion? How, how many deer do we think we have in Indiana? No, we've we've never uh, bothered trying to calculate that. Okay. And the reason is, is because those numbers are there's so much error in those numbers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, there are some techniques that we could use to possibly get at a statewide number. Okay. And and we may try to, we may try to do that in the future, but we 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 have to have more data, and some of that data is this age data we've been talking about. Uh, but it's also got to be accurate age data. So we know to start with that when you age a deer by its teeth, there is error in that. And it doesn't matter if that person is the the best deer, you know, 
researcher person who ever existed and has aged, you know, thousands upon thousands of deer, there is there's error going to be in there, and it's basically those older age classes. And but even in the younger age classes, there's a good chance to misage a deer if it's uh, if it was born early in the year because it throws out that tooth that you need to age and it's coming in and it looks like it's older than it is. So we know there's error built into it. There uh, is also error in every other metric that we possibly need. So then what happens is when you try to estimate that number, all those errors start adding up and you know you can come up with a number, but then you start looking at it and it's like, you know, plus or minus this a lot of deer, and it's like, well, God, can't they do any better than that? And, and you know, no. I mean, you know, we can get better, but it's more expensive. And so, basically, the higher quality of data you can get, the more expensive it becomes. And you know, especially now, you know, we don't have a lot of, um, you know, extra money to go around to try to, you know, estimate a deer population, because you know, we we rely on this these trend numbers. Mm-hmm. But the other thing we also know from uh, experience and doing research on like these techniques is the smaller scale you get. So, you know, think of Indiana as being one scale and a county as another. If you try to apply that same technique to the county, the error is even greater because your sample size are getting smaller. So basically, like, even if we came up with a statewide number, of course, the next thing is, well, can you tell me how many we have in the county? Then all of a sudden it's, well, we can, but that number is going to be so, you know, we never know the truth and there's going to be so much error in there. You know, it doesn't help us for management. Mm-hmm. So uh, so that's why we typically don't do that. But part of this project, this integrated deer management project, is to see uh, basically the, the researchers at Purdue, those those PhD students, are trying to figure out cost-effective ways of estimating deer population size and you know and, and that's the key because you know like I said we could we could we could do aerial flights which are very expensive and come up with a, a decent estimate we could go out and do herd health checks and get a very accurate age or we could have hunters send us their teeth uh, the, the incisor from the deer and get an accurate age but the more accurate you are the more expensive it becomes yeah but what we're wondering is, are there techniques out there that are actually pretty accurate, you know, that w- that would that's got an acceptable level of error that aren't very expensive? And so a big part of what Purdue is doing is testing out these various techniques, but at the same time, they're also recording their cost, like how much time they've got technicians out in the field, like doing things, so that we can figure out on a you know, let's say a per deer basis, how much each technique costs and how much error is in it. So then, you know, if we find something that's, you know, the, the kind of the gold standard that, you know, any state would love to have is a cheap or free uh, method for estimating the size of the deer population that's, that's accurate to, you know, a fine enough scale that we can actually use it for management purposes. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure some people are, are to, to, add on to that last statement, I'm sure some people are wondering, what is accomplished by knowing that number? How is that helpful? Yeah. And, and you know, honestly, uh, it, it doesn't tell us a lot because in the end, what we're going to be doing is managing those trends anyway. So, you know, rather than using an index, so 
uh, biologists use a lot of index. So when we have something that can't be measured or can't be measured easily, easily, like the deer population, what we do is we watch these indices. An index of the deer population might be the number of deer harvested per hour, that effort data. We could get effort data very easily through our surveys, and it would be fairly accurate. Now, we don't know exactly how many deer that represents. We, we could actually do a study where we say, okay, in these couple of counties, we're actually going to measure the deer population very at a very fine scale. And we know it's going to be expensive, but we're going to do this. And then as that index goes up and down, we would monitor the deer population going up and down. And so then we would know how closely that index ties together. But even in the absence of that, you know, we know that if effort is increasing, the deer population is probably, is probably getting smaller. We just, just don't know exactly by how much, but we do know that, you know, we can manage those trends then by, you know, allowing the deer population to creep up and then evening it off and then, you know, maybe putting it down a little bit if that effort is getting too easy uh, because that would just be an indication the population now has gotten really large. But some of those indexes that we use are, you know, that effort data, mm -hmm. uh, hunter opinion, non-hunter opinion. And what we're looking for is how that changes over time. Yeah. Deer vehicle collisions, uh, that was a little bit more tricky to use. I don't think it's as good an index. But because we don't know how great these indexes are, we combine a bunch of them together. And so that's what I was saying before, that if we see that every single one of our indexes indicate an increasing deer population we probably have an in increasing deer population and we can manage you know how people want it do they want more do they want less they want to keep it the same same thing if we see a decreasing deer population based on our indices we just make management adjustments uh you know just based on what we're seeing so in reality it would give us a number but it really wouldn't change that much in terms of how we're managing it would be another indicator in the That's grand right. scheme. So That's right. all these things that you list are all indicators and, and, you know, one indicator by itself doesn't necessitate a reaction, but when you have multiple of them start to point towards the same direction, that's when you guys can make an educated response. That's right. Yeah. Um, the follow-up question to that, that two of those three individuals sent in was, do we know, and I know this kind of changes because of lifetime licenses, but do we know how many deer hunters we have? No, uh, in in a deer report we estimate that, mm -hmm. and we estimate it based on success rates. Okay. Uh, and so what we do is, you know, we we know how many licensed Indiana hunters uh, uh, harvest a deer and how long it takes. And so we know from our surveys how many landowners harvest a deer, and also from our check-in records. So we know how many uh, that they check in and how many uh, uh, lifetime license holders check in. And then we can take those two numbers and then back figure the estimated number of hunters, which is why we publish an estimated number of hunters as opposed to the actual number of hunters. And for those listening, there's, you know, there's lifetime holders out there that may not harvest a deer, so they don't record anything, um, but yet they still hunted. That's something that you guys can't measure. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that's why we have to estimate it. So if, yep. if our success rate is 30% and we have, you know, uh, 
a thousand hunters who take the survey and their success rate is the same. We can just calculate out the number of unsuccessful hunters that represents and then add those two numbers together. Uh, the, the, one of the questions goes towards a topic that we kind of touched on, but they wanted to know about the late special antlerless season. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we did see a shift this year. Um, for those of you who have been paying attention, I know I shared it. I know I saw numerous other, when Joe sent out the, the email mass that the, we're going to be doing a statewide one, correct? Except for a few those counties. Eight counties. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate on why that shift towards that and uh, what what made you come to that conclusion? Yeah, so uh, so we ran into the same thing last year as well. When we reduced those quotas, we realized that, oh, my gosh, that's going to wipe out that season in, in southern Indiana. And so but last year we were able to say, OK, our previous quotas, the quotas that we had, you know, earlier in that year, because we already had those in place, you know, people had already made plans and so forth, we need to keep that season. When we did the quotas again this year, basically the same realization happened. It's like, wow, we don't have that anywhere in the state. And we know that hunters like it, or at least, you know, 50 to 60% of hunters like it. And so we started thinking, okay, you know, what are we going to do? Do we just want to let that go and not bother having that season? And just leave it tied, you know, to the uh, the county bonus antlers quotas, or or what? And so I started doing a little uh, research into that. And, and first thing I figured, you know, I looked back is the actual numbers of hunters that reported they liked it and they didn't like it. And if I remember, it was like on one survey it was 50%, another survey it was like 60%, and then uh, the same thing, the number of hunters that didn't like it was like 50 and 30%. And so, you know, there was definitely a bigger percentage that, that liked hunting that season. And, you know, and, I, and I've, I've had conversations with people over the years as, as to why they don't like it or why they do like it. And I think a lot of the reasons that hunters don't like it is because it was always tied to those quotas. And so, you know, you would, it would just give people greater time to get to that, you know, quota for that county and cause more deer to be taken out of the population. Well, if the quotas are low and that's in there, it just provides more opportunity, but no greater opportunity to harvest more deer. And so, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe hunters would, would like this. Uh, but what I really want to know as well is, does it actually have this, you know, downward effect on the deer population or, or, or more deer harvested? And so I went to uh, our statistician, Emily, again, and she ran those numbers and and showed me that you know in the counties when they dropped from a uh, three to a four when you take out the the effect of just having a um, you know a one one up quota it only really affected the deer uh, harvest by you know seven eight percent and you know sometimes we get that level of fluctuation from year to year in counties that don't even have a quota change you know it's just you know, deer populations fluctuate and harvest fluctuates. And so we saw it didn't have an effect. We saw, you know, hunters in general, and we know there's a lot that don't like it. Uh, and we, and we, so we started thinking, okay, well, what metric can we use to, to still have it that, you know, is 
appropriate. And, and we really struggled with that one. And the only thing we'd come up with was, well, we could just do it statewide in any of the counties that don't already have a limit on the number of days you can hunt. And, that, and that's essentially what the A counties have is, you know, you can only use a firearm in those last, uh, I think it's like the last four days of uh, firearm season. And and I look back at some of the historical records, and I've got this on the website, but in like 2012, it was in almost every county other than maybe like 10 counties or something like that. So we have had it nearly statewide in the past. And so, you know, the thought is, well, let's try it. It's only for a year, uh, you know, because those can change from, you know, th those types of regulations we can change from year to year. We'll give hunters a chance. They can give us feedback right now or the survey will be up soon on our website so they can give us some feedback now before the season and then we'll ask about it again after the season and if you know if it's you know universally hated and you know people really have changed how they hunt and uh how they you know they don't they don't really utilize that season then you know that's something that we can just you know let drop or let go back to the way that it's, that it's been in the past and leave it just tied to the quotas but you know again it's just this idea well, let's, you know, try something, you know, here was this opportunity, you know, our past data seems to say that, yeah, you know, I think a, a lot of people will like it. And now that it's not tied to the quota in terms of like, you know, you could be hunting in a county that's a two and still just get to hunt, harvest your doe later in the year. Let's, uh, you know, let's try it and, and see what happens. So, you know, uh, you know, hopefully hunters won't get, you know, too upset by this. You know, right now it's just this first year and we'll We'll totally evaluate it based on what hunters are are telling us. But you know, it's again the deer biologist trying to figure out what hunters are wanting and how to increase the utility of deer or the happiness with with deer hunting. And you know, and sometimes that means that you know a group of people, you know, 60% become more happy because they have a little bit extra time to hunt, but a group of people become less happy because, you know, maybe they wanted to hunt some other species and now some deer hunters are still utilizing that area or, um, you know, they, you know, feel like some extra deer are going to get taken or, or so, so forth. But, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, hopefully hunters won't be uh, too upset with us wanting just to try some new things on these limited bases. And, you know, like we talked about, uh, you know, any permanent change that's made, you know, we get a lot more feedback from hunters prior to any of these, you know, significant long-term changes that, you know, the DNR proposes or makes through that, just that normal rule process. Yeah. And, you know, I heard a few rumblings and I know you had emailed, you've heard the same thing. You know, some hunters were like, why didn't you ask for our, our hunter options to this? Well, in essence, you drew this decision from our input. Yeah. So we have been heard and, you know, we've learned and we've heard from you today. If this doesn't work, you guys are not, you know, you're not, you're not going to, you know, stand your feet in the sand and say, no, this is what we're going to do. No, if it's not working or hunters give you feedback that, Hey, this isn't what we desire or like, or here are our reasons, you know, you'll change it. That's exactly so. right. I mean, you know, I'm, like I said, you know, my philosophy is increasing that utility or happiness. And, you know, that, that feedback will, uh, will help us with that because it's not having a significant impact, you know, on, on the population. It's not like we're trying to, you know, push the population down somewhere, you know, using this tool. You know, we've got much finer scale tools for that. But it's just, 
Yeah, you know, and, 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 you know, the biggest thing that I was hearing from hunters is why they liked it. They just liked hunting their doe later in later in the year and they wanted to concentrate on buck hunting during during the rut during that first part of the season and a lot of them knew that well hey if i could just you know hunt that late season after christmas then uh you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna worry about trying to shoot a doe during gun season oh yeah and i know i'm a bow hunter by by nature that's what i do the Mm -hmm. most of i love the late season because then i'll grab my rifle or my muzzleloader fill the freezer after i'm done because it's a lot easier to raise up and squeeze a trigger when it's 30 degrees out than than try to draw a bow (laughs) on on a doe and and you know i i come from a perspective i don't kill does on my property until after for a multitude of reasons one they're they're great they're they're the best live bait we can use (laughs) legally for that big buck (laughs) for the buck yeah (laughs) and also you know, I like to kind of be reactive. You never know what's going to happen. Is EHD going to go into October? You never know harvest trends right. of the area around you. You may think you have a really good doe population heading into the season in your isolated, located area. And then, man, you get to November or December and, you know, you're collecting data. And I run a lot of trail camera surveys and try to estimate the population. I kind of like to harvest later into the year because I can kind of, whoa, maybe I shouldn't harvest anything this year. Um Obviously, when does bunch up for the winter, that can also impact what you're observing, too, and artificially inflate your numbers, too. So you have to be cognizant of that. But um, I think it's a good thing. I think as long as hunters, you know, check that head before you squeeze the trigger. If you don't want to kill a shed buck, that's really the only thing that I guess I'd let guys know. Just be sure to check on that. Yeah, and we should only have a very small percentage of bucks at that point who who have shed. I mean that that would still be fairly early, but but yeah, I mean that's just a important thing is you know yeah, look at that body shape and and try to you know use your scope and look at the head a little bit closer if you just want to make sure you don't make that mistake. But you know especially if you're shooting a you got a uh, a maternal group of does, it should be fairly obvious you know kind of yeah. which is which. Yep. Um, another question I got, and I think this one's pretty uh, self-explanatory, seeing as how hunting is one of the best social distancing out there. Is co- Are we going to see COVID play any factor on our deer seasons, public lands at this point? I know it's a moving target, but have you? Do you know anything? I, I haven't heard anything. Uh, you know, again, for the most part, I think we socially distance anyway when we hunt. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. When you're a bow hunter, you're already a lot of times wearing a mask anyway. Uh, you know, and then if we do hunt in a group, a lot of times, you know, it's with our close family or something like that. And then, you know, people can make, you know, their own decisions about that. But in, in terms of hunting in general, because it is a lot of times when you're doing it right then, it is, that so, it is a solitary thing. And so, um, yeah, I, I haven't, I haven't heard anything, uh, to the, to that effect yet yeah. good deal i uh I, it's, it's an odd time we live in but hey i look forward to the fall because it's our escape from it all we can get yeah. out there and and enjoy enjoy nature um i guess in closing joe two final thoughts is there anything that you'd like to add or you believe any of the deer hunters should should hear and then also if you could close for us what is your overview or opinion on the landscape in Indiana as far as deer hunting goes and kind of where we're heading? Do you have a good feeling, a bad feeling? Are you excited? Are you hesitant? Just kind of what's your overview if somebody asked you, what do you see the direction we're heading? Yeah, and if you don't mind me giving a plug for another podcast for some of your listeners, uh, 
you know, the best thing that any hunter can do, especially if they if they want to be more involved with deer management, is to become, you know, educated about you know some of the science that 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 biologists use to um, to manage deer, how we understand deer, like you know how how we view them. And uh, a great resource for that is the uh, Mississippi State uh, Deer University podcast. And, you know, anytime I talk to hunters or land managers about, like, maybe what's going on with their deer population on their property, uh, you know, even about planting and, you know, those types of kind of uh, small-scale technical questions, I a lot of times refer them to that podcast because, you know, they talk about nutrition population dynamics, you know, all of these uh, kind of scientific theories that go around managing deer. And so then once you start really understanding, you know, these populations from, um, you know, the same perspective as your deer biologist, then, you know, you you start understanding maybe why some of the management decisions are being made, uh, you know, you know, the, the comments are a lot of times about, you know, the population and population dynamics and, and this kind of stuff. So, and it's a really good podcast. Uh, Bronson Strickland and Steve Damaris, they did, they did an excellent job on these. I know they're not putting them out as regularly, but those past episodes really cover a variety of techniques that, uh, you know, I mean, I even use those to keep up on some of the current research. A lot of times I don't have a lot of time to go out and uh, read all the deer literature because there is just bucket loads of it that's produced by u- universities and university researchers, and so a lot of times I'll use that to keep up on some uh, some of the current information. But you know, just to really understand more about uh, managing deer, especially if you're managing deer on a, on a local level, like if you're managing deer on your property or, or, or a group of people are managing deer, uh, that is an excellent educational resource and. You know, kind of their their process is they take uh, current research on white-tailed deer. Most of it's coming out of Mississippi State, but some up from some of their southeastern partners, and then breaking it down into uh, these easily digestible chunks. And it's, it's kind of one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. They're traveling to meetings and this kinds of stuff, and just you know, even as a refresher on some of the basics of, of deer management, because, you know, if you don't think of something for a while, you know, you do tend to forget it. So, uh, but that's an excellent resource that if, you know, you want to get more involved, more educated and understand the deer population on your, on your properties. And in, in, in terms of the outlook, uh, you know, I, I try not to formulate a personal opinion about, you know, uh, the, the thing you asked, you know, about what we think. Mm-hmm. But what I do is I look at what hunters are telling us. And, you know, in general, it seems to be that, you know, hunters are pleased with the direction we're going. Uh, you know, the the direction we're going should also, you know, produce a healthy deer population. Um, you know, we've seen in Indiana that hunters by choice are – uh, you know, choosing to take older deer. And what that means is then you get this older age structure and you get larger bucks. That's the thing that hunters are very interested in as well. And so just from the the choices that hunters are making, uh, the, the rules that are in place that help facilitate that, like the one buck rule, 
you know, you know, for most of the quotas, even when they're high, a lot of hunters just don't choose to take that many deer. And so it looks like, you know, we've got a healthy deer population that's also not overpopulated. Um, you know, because that, that's one of the things that, you know, a, a lot of times people um, miss out on. And, and, and again, this is one of the things actually covered in the Deer University podcast is when you have a lot of deer, typically they are poor quality uh, because you can you can you can have a lot of deer, but you know their um, their quality can tend to go down over time because habitat can get degraded and stuff. With a bit of a smaller deer population, you actually have more food on the landscape for those uh, bucks and your does to utilize, and so you can actually get this thriving, better quality deer population through you know, uh, a little bit higher harvest than you might think, uh, simply because it just gives more resources for those deer that are out there to get bigger and healthier and, and come through the winter better. But yeah, I'm, I'm, but based on what I'm seeing from both the public side and the, uh, from, from our deer hunters and, and the population, you know, indices that we talked about earlier, I mean, it looks like we're in a, in a good trend. Good deal. And for us deer hunters, you're still going to be connected to us. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, that's that's the thing I love about my current job is, you know, I get, like I said, I've worked with, with herps, and so I get to continue to do that. Uh, never had an opportunity to work with fish, and so I'm actually getting to learn a lot about fish management and get involved with that, and also with the deer program. And so, you know, this is... Um, you know, an, an exciting job for me because I do get to uh, learn and, and keep involved with a lot of different uh, aspects of wildlife management in Indiana. Excellent. And I will second the thoughts on the Deer University. Um, I pulled it up for those listening. It's on most streaming sites. If you use Apple Podcasts, if you just search Deer University, it'll pop up. Uh, Steve Damaris and Bronson Strickland are two guys, along with uh, – Craig Harper, Dr. Craig Harper. Mm-hmm. Those are probably yep. three of my favorite. If they put something out, it's in my hands the day of, um, or as soon as I can get it. I digest everything I can from them. There's 41 episodes over there for those of you listening, and it is just a wealth of knowledge. They take very scientific discussions and just break it down. Um, the mineral stump episodes where they go through the nu- nutrient density of what they found was just an incredible episode. I'm, I'm a big habitat guy, and I second everything. They have an episode on CWD, which, you know, we didn't even touch on. Maybe we'll have to have you back on, Joe, and we can touch on the status of CWD in Indiana. But I just want to thank you again for swinging by, um, having a lengthy conversation about deer. I know I enjoy it. Hopefully we didn't take too much of your time, and hopefully we can do this again. Yep, absolutely. I'm I'm always happy to to talk about deer and, and other wildlife management issues, so be happy to. Excellent. And on behalf of all the listeners, thank you again. And uh, that's going to end this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. Hopefully, uh, everything that you've heard encourages you, and hopefully it encourages you to to do your part. Um, Do those surveys, communicate with the DNR. When they ask our input, put it forth. If we we unfortunately go through another thing like EHD, be one of those that, you know, are proactive in in communicating live data to Joe and, and his staff and everybody there. And I just want to thank you for for tuning in and listening, and we'll see you next time.